Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, Catherine Nixie talks about her book, The Darkening Age, the Christian destruction of the classical world with Zulika Rogers of Trinity College Dublin. The episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 30th of September 2017. Hello. Thank you very much for having me here. In some ways, it feels strange to talk about the topic of Christian destruction here in Dublin. Less than a kilometre to the east of where we are now, sitting in climate-controlled conditions, is an object that has been described as the most precious object in the Western world. It's so delicate, this object, that it must be handled with white gloves. It's so valuable that if you do handle it, you have to promise that you will afterwards not write about where you were when you did so, in case it's stolen. (coughs) And it's so loved that it's received an honour that few books achieve. It's been turned into a tea towel. (laughs) It is, of course, the Book of Kells. I don't need to tell you that. But the Book of Kells is far more than just the Book of Kells. It's part of the story of Christianity itself. This is the Christianity that we all know. This is the Christianity of ancient monastic libraries, of beautiful illuminated manuscripts, of the Venerable Bede, and of a Vatican that keeps Latin going now, centuries after it should have died a natural death, translating such words as video game, computer, and heavy metal. In case you're interested, it's musica, metallis, gravis, into Latin. So that's one story of Christianity. And it's true. I don't deny that story at all. Of course I can't. Of course I wouldn't. But there is another side to Christianity. And I want to take you there now. I want to take you in your imaginations to a world 400 years before the Book of Kells, to a world where Christianity wasn't the established religion of Europe, but a relatively young religion that had just, to everybody's amazement, been adopted by the most powerful man in the Western world, the Emperor of Rome. I want to take you to North Africa at the end of the fifth century AD. In particular, I want to take you to a festival, not to a Christian festival, but to something that none of us have ever and will never experience, a pagan one. Pagan festivals were the sort of things that made Christian clerics very cross. The air, it was said, smelt of roasted meat. You knew there was a festival before you even walked into a city because the smell of a sort of barbecuing smell was on the air. People brought out tables into the streets so that they could feast and dance. People's lips would have been dark with the red of wine. There was dancing, music, singing, some of it rude. The noise at one of these events would have been so loud that at first you wouldn't have heard the screams. But then you would have sensed the panic. Because 
At some of these festivals, bands of rough young men burst in. They were there on a mission. They were there to punish these idol worshippers as they saw them in their godless ways. These men were the Christians. They didn't just attack at festivals, these men. They were called circumcilians. They could drag people from their homes or attack them in the street. The attacks were terrible and terrifying. Most often they used clubs, but sometimes they varied their attacks. Sometimes they stabbed people with shards of wood, and then they developed what something, uh, an attack that was called the work of the very devil himself. They made a mixture of acid and threw it in people's faces. Why should you see, they said, if you can't see the truth of God? That was their reasoning. And as they committed these attacks, they shouted what was their famous catchphrase? Laudes Deo, praise the Lord. Sometimes the pagans didn't give up without a fight. Sometimes these people were killed in the scuffles that followed. But these men didn't actually mind that because their main aim wasn't to kill, it was to be killed. They wanted not for you to die, they wanted to die themselves. Because what they really wanted, above everything else, was martyrdom. Martyrs, it was said, would have a hundred times the rewards in heaven. A hundred times the oxen, a hundred times the family, a hundred times the children. In life, these men had nothing. They were nobodies, badly educated, poorly paid, at the very bottom of a very hierarchical empire. And then they had this promise. You might not be able to live well, but if you die well, if you die for your God, then you will get a hundred times the rewards of all these people around you. And more than that, as well as having paradise eternally in heaven, you will have eternal fame on earth. It's a heady combination. This book, my book, is a story about what we could now call today the triumph of Christianity. It's a story that's a long way away from those diligent monks who copied out the Book of Kells. It is instead a story of violent destruction and ruthless suppression. I learned about the triumph of Christianity as a child. You do learn about the triumph of Christianity if your mother was a nun and your father was a monk. <laughs> They'd left, I have to say. Okay, so anyone's worried. They had left by the, time, by the time we came along. But if you have this heritage, you grow up with some certainties. I believed in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I believed in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. I thought it was completely fine to wear socks with sandals. <laughs> and I also thought, in the clash between the Romans and Christians, it was the Romans who were in the wrong. I thought the Romans had been nasty and brutish, and the poor Christians had been meek and oppressed. In my defense, it wasn't just me who thought this. Every Hollywood film, every children's history book, many adult history books took this line. Hollywood particularly, in Hollywood films, the poor meek Christians, in, often in white, are pursued by nasty, brutish Romans. Often fat, almost always it seemed, played by Peter Ustinov. 
And so that's the tale we know. But bits of it are true. Lots of it is true, but not all of it. Because there's another side to the triumph of Christianity. It's a side that is much darker and more frightening. It's not well known outside academic circles, and it's not that well studied in them. Why would it be? History is written by the winners, and the Christian victory was absolute. Until 1871, you pretty much had to be ordained to teach at Oxford or Cambridge. That's not an atmosphere that encourages dissent. And sure enough, there wasn't much. So perhaps it's not surprising that what I write about isn't that well known, which is a shame because I think it's important. First, let's take this idea of those relentless, nasty, brutish, persecuting Romans. It just isn't true. Certainly, they had their moments. Few would say that the Romans were spotless. But in three centuries of Roman rule, there were only 13 years of imperial persecution. There were sporadic local persecutions, but only 13 years during which persecution came from the government. And often, even when Christians presented themselves to Roman governors, the Roman governors, if we are to believe the text, just didn't want to kill them. There's a lovely story about a governor in Asia called Arius Antoninus, this aristocratic Roman. You can picture him as you read it. He's at his, at his work one day, at his office, sitting at a desk or however a Roman did these things. And he's told that there's a band of Christians outside who want to die. Christians did this a lot. They would turn up in chains asking to be executed. Again, they wanted the martyrdom. And Arius Antoninus turns to them. He executes one or two. He is a Roman. But then he turns to the others and he says, you wretches, haven't you got cliffs you can jump off or ropes you can hang yourselves with? Why bother me, is his message. It's utterly unfathomable to them. There's another account where a Christian who's eager to die comes up to a Roman governor and gets put on trial, and the Roman governor tries everything he can to persuade her. Please don't do this. Look at your family. They're crying. And another one, you get a Roman governor using the weather as a sort of diversion tactic. Look at the weather, he says. It's such a sunny day. No pleasure will come your way if you kill your own self. These Roman officials, these people who we now call pagans, wouldn't be shown the same leniency by the Christians once a Christian was in charge. After Constantine took control of the empire and declared himself, showed himself to be a follower of Christ in 312 AD, conversion was rapid, and when it was not voluntary, it was enforced. When Constantine took over the Roman Empire, which had perhaps a population of 60 million people, less than 10% were Christian. The Christians would later present this as a great release. Everybody looked at each other, they said, with shining faces, smiling faces, shining eyes. They were free. They weren't. Most people, the vast majority of people, were not Christian. But within 100 years, the numbers had reversed. Within 100 years, Somewhere between 70 and 90% were Christian, 10% were not. That's a staggering conversion rate. We've since said that it happened because the pagans weren't that interested in their own gods, or because people just learned about Christianity through the wise teachings of St. Paul and embraced it. 
But that's an entire empire converted in what is, in historical terms, an eye blink. How? It's not simple. You do not achieve that rate of conversion with kisses and cuddles and the charisma of some letters. Within a few years of Constantine being on the throne, the first laws had begun to appear. Superstition, announced on Laura of 341, will cease. The madness of sacrifices shall be abolished. The laws hardened. Anyone who dared to sacrifice, it was said, could be struck down with an avenging sword. Destruction follows. Temples were broken open, their statues were brought out and destroyed or sold. Bands of terrifying black road monks, ill-educated, bearded, terrifying groups, started to roam the countryside, attacking temples with sticks and iron bars or their hands and feet if they had nothing else. And priests, it was said, of the old religions had to just keep quiet or die. This Christian attack was the largest destruction of art that human history had ever seen. We've all seen its results, even if we don't know that we have. The Parthenon marbles, you know the Parthenon marbles, many of them have no faces, no hands, no feet. That wasn't time, that was Christians. They hacked off some of the finest statuary that Greece had ever produced because they thought there were demons in it. They smashed the middle of the east pediment onto the floor and then most certainly ground it down to use it as mortar for a church. Christian, non-Christians begged them to stop. They petitioned the emperor to say, not to say that everyone can now have whatever religion they want. They just said, please stop attacking our temples. They were rebuffed. Another one begged them on a separate occasion to keep an altar. He, his, his plea has gone down as one of the most famous of all. We see the same stars, he wrote to the emperor. The same sky is shared by all. What does it matter what wisdom a person uses to seek for the truth? It mattered to the Christians. They argued back and they argued back harder and now they're in power. That superstition of pagans and heathens should be annihilated is what God wants, what God commands, what God proclaims, said St. Augustine. Another one weighed in. Don't worry about breaking the law, he said. Even if you are breaking the law when you smash a temple, it doesn't matter. Because there is no crime for those who have Christ. It's such a powerful idea. There is no crime for you, whatever you do. That man who said that, by the way, beat another man to death, saving him, he said, from his sin. It wasn't just temples, ideas became dangerous. The remains of the finest library in the world, the Library of, Pal of Alexandria, were destroyed, scattered to the winds. In Alexandria, philosophers were tortured. A famous female mathematician, Hypatia, was flayed alive, and it was said they gouged her eyes out while she was still breathing. They thought that she was from Satan because they saw her mathematical symbols and assumed that it was some kind of devilish, satanic trick. Today, we call this period the triumph of Christianity. I would say it's worth remembering the original meaning of the word triumph. The Roman word triumph wasn't just another word for success. A true Roman triumph wasn't merely about the victory of the winner. 
It was about the total and utter subjugation of the loser, an enemy whose soldiers had been beaten, their possessions despoiled, and their leaders humiliated. A triumph wasn't merely a victory, it was an annihilation. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine. That really, I think, gave the audience a very good sense of the book, which is a, a terrific book, both thought-provoking and provocative, I mean, both those things in a, in, in a positive way. There was a, there was a ripple of intrigue across the audience when you said that you were the daughter of a nun <laughs> and a monk, and I, I felt I had to pursue that slightly in my first question, because I'm interested in how you came to think of writing this book, and perhaps whether it took the daughter of a nun and a monk to see this thing, which is really hiding in plain sight for us. I mean, we, we will talk a little bit more about the detail of it, of the connection between these two things. But at the moment that the classical world is is wiped away, that we lose 90% of the, of the literature and a huge amount of the art uh, and a huge amount of the scientific knowledge, and they're wiped away virtually for a millennium, that's at the same time that the, the church triumphant uh, emerges. How did you come to the idea and why do you think it hasn't been addressed more before? I accept your point about the, you know, the, the academy being dominated by the church for many years, but you know, it's, we're, it's more than 200 years since, since enlightenment now, you know? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. So um, on, on the nun-monk thing, first of all, so my, my father was a monk at Ampleforth in Yorkshire and he then met my mother who had left. She left after Vatican II. I think she'd hoped it would be more revolutionary and, than it was. And she was sort of disappointed by Vatican II. She left, she was teaching in a Catholic school. And my father was the sort of monk associated with the school in Wales. And he came home one day to the, the parish house and the, the, his superior said, oh, there's a, there's a former nun at the school. I think you should stay away from her. I think she's trouble. <laughs> so instantly he thought, oh, I'm bicycled over to see her. <laughs> Um, and I asked him once, I said, why did you go and why did you bicycle over to see her? And he said, oh, I wanted to talk to her about new forms of religious community in the modern world. I've heard that one before. That's <laughs> <laughs> what they all say. Um, anyway, he got, he got it, which he got in a way. Anyway, so he, then they became firm friends. And then um, he was posted to be chaplain at UCL. So he was told that he had to go and then they realized they didn't want to separate. So he ended up leaving and the church said, no, you can't. His abbot told him, um, who was Basil Hume, told him he was making a terrible mistake, said you have to separate for six months. And I think they managed two months apart and then they thought it's not a terrible mistake and they left. But you so, grew up in a house of faith. So yeah, I grew up, I was brought up Catholic, even though my mother stopped believing in Catholicism the moment my brother was born because um, much to his, his sort of feeling of that being how the world should be. Um, but she thought she couldn't hold the idea of an omniscient, omnipotent God who would harm a baby. So she instantly stopped believing. But I think you can't go kind of cold turkey, as it were, on that kind of life. It had been so much part of their life. They couldn't imagine, they couldn't imagine a world without being Catholic. So yeah, we were brought up, we were brought up Catholic. And, you know, we would go to places, we didn't come to the Book of Kells, but we would come and see things like that. So we would, on our, on our holidays, we would go, you know, we would go to the Vatican, we would go to libraries, and I would see these books and they would explain to me that during the dark ages in Europe, that the monks had kept 
kept going the knowledge of the ancient world. And, and that's a very powerful idea. And in fact, the previous anybody who was at the previous talk will have will will, will have heard quite quite a lot about that. It's a particularly attractive idea to us here in Ireland. You yeah. know, this this notion well, of holding a, holding a light, you know, yeah. against you know out against the darkness. Mm. But as you say, there's another way of looking at this. Yeah, and I, I think the reason when you said why did I think of it? Well, I did classics at university. And I remember standing in the library and I had a book of Aristotle in my hand. And I, I don't know how much of Aristotle you've read, but he's so fiercely scientific and experimental. You know, he conducts all these experiments. He's constantly questioning, experimenting. He does this famous thing where he uh, chops up a bird's egg at different levels of gestation to see how the, how the fetus is developing inside the shell. And I just thought, I, I can't imagine that this thought world and that thought world fitted together quite as neatly as I was told when I was younger. What were you told when you were younger then? Because uh, I grew up in a vaguely Catholic uh, kind of kind of a background and I think actually it was more glided over. The story of the early church, you know, we didn't hear a lot about the story of yeah. the early church. Could you have heard more about it? I mean, I can't remember verbatim, but certainly mm. when I know that we went to see lots of, you know, we would go and see lots of old manuscripts and I would ask because I was interested you know, and, and that would be what I was told I mean I I sort of like so much of what you get when you're brought up Catholic I kind of I found my mind was dyed with it without ever knowing where it had come from mm, mm. so then to go to go to that official history if you want to put it that way martyrdom <clears throat> which is a hugely powerful idea not just in early Christianity but but throughout Christianity and particularly in the in the Catholic tradition and you are I think it's fair to say very skeptical about martyrdom both in the way in the portrayal of how Christians were treated in the pre-Christian Roman Empire and also the uh, over attachment if I can put it that way of Christians to uh, um, to dying basically yeah. almost like you, you the way you describe it it's almost as if early christianity was like a death cult a suicide cult well they, some of them there was a cult the one i mentioned in the talk the ones who would attack people and throw acid in their faces they were described as a, a death sect by it was by a, a christian um i was quite shocked when you we, i was brought up believing I don't for a moment kind of take away from those people who, those people, and it was often mainly women, actually, whatever the text say, it was mainly women who would be executed because they were the ones who were too poor and lacking connections to get away. The bishops, I think, slipped away like salmon, famously, whenever a, a persecution was on its way. But it was those, the poor, the female, those with family ties, those who didn't have the money to get away, those with disabilities who were often executed. But um, I don't, without, I don't want to sort of, minimize what they did because they did it in good faith the, the mm. people who really did die but what is interesting is in the texts the lavish delight with which they describe these deaths i mean it's it, it's sort of salacious recounting of the way in which you know flesh will melt like wax bones will crack like like twigs in the fire you know, the enjoyment of the moment of death, and there's a particularly unnerving one, I think, where a mother, a mother's son is up there and, um, and he's maybe seven or something and he's being put on trial. And she says, you know, she's sort of pushing him forward, saying, no, no, keep, keep at it. And, and the Roman stenographer, it said there's the stenographer in this court because 
these trials were conducted, you know, in the, in the full Roman fashion. So it said his eyes were wet with tears and everybody wanted him to recant because you could, as it, Romans wanted conformity, they didn't want martyrs. So the moment you said, okay, I'll just sacrifice, they would let you go. And they often went out of their way to try and let you sacrifice. They'd say, okay, well, you don't want to do a full-blooded sacrifice, totally get that. Just, just dip your fingers in the ash. And okay, you don't want to say you believe in this, just say, will you say you believe in the emperor? And, and another one said, okay, totally appreciate that you don't want to sacrifice, blame me. You know, I'm making you do it. Tell your God when you meet him, he made me do it, I wouldn't have done it. And then you can go free. And, and there is this refusal, partly later mythical, but also in some cases true, this refusal to take the escape route. And that was what completely baffled the Romans. And I think the most shocking one is this mother who sees her son going up and he has a moment, his back is flogged and he turns around and she says something like, don't disappoint me. You know, I am such a lucky mother to have my son die a martyr's death. And then he's flogged again and everybody is weeping except the mother who's delighted, she's smiling. And then when his head, he's beheaded and she goes underneath and it's described how she catches his head in her hands as, the, as it falls from his neck. I mean, it's extraordinary. You don't... Yeah, you kind of... Um, you mentioned Constantine, mm. who famously saw a flaming crucifix in the sky and mm. converted apparently to Christianity. And you talk about what follows the, the, the mass conversion really of the, mm. of, the, of the greater population in an incredibly short space of time. When you say that, are you saying really that, that, that this moment of conversion is, is a state imposed one as we'd understand it rather than the, the, the popular acceptance, the, the kind of the, with joy which, which, which the conversion to Christianity uh -huh. was depicted as? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, that some people definitely converted and were happy to. Um, they, they, the phrase they often use in the ancient text is they say people spontaneously converted to Christianity and sang hymns of praise. And what will cause them to spontaneously convert to Christianity is often that their temple's just been demolished. And then the people, the villagers will rush and sing a hymn. And so they said it was spontaneous. I think you pretty much have to doubt, doubt that many, that that rate of conversion was achieved through spontaneity alone. I mean, the destruction is terrible and it's clear, very frightening. And intellectuals are nervous and they beg, it, they beg for them to stop. Um, mm. I mean, there aren't laws expressly making you be baptized until you get to Justinian in, in about 529 AD, but then, then there are those laws. If you don't get baptized, if you sacrifice, you're going to be executed. That happens much earlier. If you get baptized and then are caught sacrificing, you will be executed. But there is no mercy because Justinian felt there was no mercy for him. And do you think that Constantine, or is it possible to know, um, was this a political act as well as a religious um, one? Yeah, it's so what was, what was in Constantine's head? It's widely disbelieved that he saw a cross in the sky. Um, if he did see a cross, that would be, he was a man blessed by visions. It was said earlier in his life, he saw a vision of Apollo and symbols of him, his head next to Apollo's head hmm. were issued. So he clearly, he's a very smart operator. There's no doubt about that. And when you read the account of why Constantine converted in Eusebius, it's presented as this kind of accounting. It's not that Constantine realized that this was the truth and he wanted to follow it. 
it's it says Constantine knew he had these battles to fight and his army wasn't up to it. And here was this new super duper god, never mind all the little itty bitty ones where you didn't know who you had to pray to. This was one like, you know, he blew them all out of the water. So Constantine sees this cross, says he sees this cross, converts, the Cairo symbol goes on the shields of the army and he wins. And then from then on, it's pretty much constant. I mean, he has, there are some things he do, does that seriously make you wonder what he believed. But yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't come across as a spiritual conversion in the text. And in terms of us trying to understand what was really happening, um, given that history is written by the winners, there is very little accounting from the experience of, experiences of non-Christians in this crucial period of what it was like to try and hold on to their own beliefs and, and resist this wave of Christianity. You, you, maybe you could tell the, the audience a bit about Celsus, who is maybe one of the few voices that we have. Oh yeah, the wonderful Celsus. So um, Celsus was a philosopher who was in Rome in about the second century AD. And he, they hated him. They basically, Christians hated him. He, they destroyed all of his texts. And one man named Origen, um, a very holy man, and who wrote a lot of very, um, very brilliant things, but he particularly hated Chelsea and, and took apart his arguments basically line by line, thus ensuring that we still have them. Whereas I love everything that. else. That's great. <laughs> So in his great demolition of Chelsus, he, he sort of hmm. preserved him like a fly in amber. And so the scholars have gone through and they've picked it all out and reconstructed Chelsus's arguments. And they they feel so modern. They feel, I don't know what you felt reading them, but hmm. you feel that you couldn't say these things today. I mean, there's one where he says, um, so why did, your why did your omnipotent God, when he was creating, creating everything, why did he need rest? on the seventh day, why did he need that? You know, why, why did he have to have a sit down like a bad builder? <laughs> and, and then he says things like, he attacks Mary. And it's sort of, it was shocking for me to read. He says, I didn't think, I didn't think God would have had a that baby with Mary. I mean, she wasn't even royal. She wouldn't have been that good looking. And it's things like that. I mean, he's, you know, he, you can see the limitations of his understanding of it. But, 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 but some of what he says ends up in Monty Python's The Life of Brian, yeah, for example. They, they, a, I know Edith Hall, the classicist, thinks that they, they read, yes, thinks, believes that they read Chelsea's because it's just so similar. Because um, there, there is something Python-esque about some of the stories, you know. Yeah, that, that and, there's, and there's this, um, there's another, there's this uh, sort of fraud who goes around preaching to everybody, pretending that he's, this is in a, this is in another text, but there's a fraud who goes around preaching to people, saying that he's the son of God, uh, not that, saying that he's divine and he's going to teach everyone how to live, how to be immortal. And um, he says, I, and I'm going to kill myself so that you can all see how to be immortal. And he stands on the edge of a pyre about to kill himself. And then he sort of says, oh, well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, and the crowd, being kind of Greek and bawdy and argumentative, they all say, oh, get on with it. <laughs> anyway, and then he jumps in. And then he's seen a few days later by his disciples wearing white, wearing a, a crown of olive, walking, walking in an orchard, I think it is. I can't remember. I can't quite remember the precise details. And he'd written letters to people who he called um, his, his messengers. And they were, they were sent all over the world. I mean, it's... 
there were a lot of people around at this time who were doing things that we recognise from, from the Gospels. So there were, there were, Chelsea says this, he says, go to any Egyptian marketplace, you know, this Jesus of yours, he's not so special, go to any Egyptian marketplace, pay a couple of obols and you can see somebody who will blow away diseases, get rid of your demons, walk on water, conjure up meals for thousands out of a couple of crumbs. Hmm. So, but which, is, which we know is, was the case at the time. Yeah. And in fact, in, at this stage in the, uh, in, in the Roman, I mean, in, in the third century, in the fourth century, there were a number of sort of religions competing to be, yeah. the, to be the new yeah, religion, aren't there? Yeah, there's yeah. a very good book on it. And, and there's another, you know, there's people who Christianity has to get really cross with. Simon Magus is one of them. Um, and then he's eventually defeated by this bizarre duel with um, Peter, where I, I think Simon Magus, <laughs> who just hasn't got the firepower, clearly, the divine firepower behind him. He brings a sardine back to life. And then <laughs> Peter counters by sending in a talking dog that walks in on his hind legs, and Simon Major says, oh, you've got me. I'm off. <laughs> well, I can't remember. That's, that's paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. I'm interested by something you, you, you said there and something you said, you said earlier when you, when you talked about reading Aristotle, um, and even when you're talking about Shelchus there, and, and the way he sort of speaks to our, our modern mind. Um, that one of the things is we look, we're looking back through this 1800 years, very difficult to put yourself in anybody's mind. But these figures, these pre-Christian figures, in many ways seem much closer to us than, than what followed in their reliance on uh, in, you know, empirical reasoning, their interests in using deductive philosophy to come to some understanding of what life means, their, uh, their aesthetics, mm. um, their, uh, even their enjoyment of the physical world, which is a whole other thing we might yeah. talk to about, about what Christianity brings. They are, even though they are very, very different in many ways and their understanding, their social structures and the way they treat each other are, are in many ways very different, they're still much more like us than, than the early Christians. Yeah, I know. It's quite striking. When you read some of those, um, there were philosophers who argued that there is no God because we're all atoms, they would say. We're not, you don't have to worry about heaven and hell. They were, they were Epicurean. It's what they called themselves. It sounds strange to us because Christians hated the Epicureans and later blackened the name of them so much that to be Epicurean today means to be a glutton. But it was nothing to do with that. Mm. Um, and they would say, don't worry about heaven and hell. You know, we are atoms coming together, moving apart. There is no such thing as a creator God. There is no punishment in the afterlife. We're just stuff, matter and void. And there are... Um, there are other philosophers. There's Galen, who um, Galen, the famous famous physician, who conducts lots of experiments, and he gets really annoyed with everybody. Basically, everybody annoys Galen, um, partly because uh, they query his his medical his medical ideas, or they have the temerity to suggest that things might be another way. But he's particularly annoyed by one philosophical school, and he says, "Trying to teach them something is like trying to teach a Christian." You know, that is his, it's the epitome to him of block-headed faith, not reason. So faith in Greek thought was the lowest position of intellectual, sort of the lowest intellectual position to hold. You ought to have reason, you ought to be uh, more logical, you ought to at least try and puzzle things out. And yeah, Galen didn't like that. So maybe this comes to what, 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 what maybe it seems to me is at the, the core of the book is this question of faith, which I think for nearly all Christians is at the core of what their what, mm -hmm. what their what their belief system is all about. You either have faith or you don't. And if you have faith, you have everything. If you don't have faith, you have nothing. This is such an an alien concept 
to the to the classical world. Mm. Um, but it's also a destructive concept because from that flows uh, the fact that what you believe is more important than what rationally exists mm. and that uh, and, and that everything you do flows from that. So it's faith that destroys classical civilization. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And faith is faith in both in God, but also really importantly in the afterlife and in demons. And mm. we don't really imagine now how real people thought demons were. Um, I mean, I know when ISIS destroy things, often they'll say they're, they're destroying demons, that, that these things are demonic. I mean, it really meant something in this period that there were demons and things. So when Augustine, Augustine takes it absolutely for granted that his congregations are going to be going out and smashing up temples and is very satisfied when they do so. They destroy this huge mile-long shrine in Carthage and he says, and look how many more people believe in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, you know, the churches are being filled. And they genuinely believed that you could be polluted by this stuff. They had absolute faith that there was God and there was everything else then that there was holy and that there were demons. And that if you touched the demonic, if you came into any contact with it, you could pollute yourself, not just in this life, but the really important thing was in the next life. So that then allows you to do all sorts of nasty things in this life because you say you're saving people. So Augustine says, you know, if somebody doesn't believe, we will beat them with a rod, but it will be as a loving father beats his son. And, you know, it will be protecting them. And if you do genuinely think you are going to burn in hell for eternity, then, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't take a beating? Like, that's, that's a positive choice. But, but, of course, he has no proof for this. This is faith, and this is why, you know, this is the danger of faith. You know, it can do many great things, but it legitimizes instantly. And where does this concept of demons come from? This is a, a monotheistic religion entering a poly, polytheistic civilization, which has a rather ambiguous relationship with its own polytheism anyway. It seems to be, certainly at this stage, it seems, you know, not everybody fully believes in it or they see it as a ritualized system of, of carrying on your life. Um, are the demons the old gods or, or who, are, who are the demons? Because they seem to be real to these people. Yeah, they, re they really are. The demons are the old gods. The demons are all over the place, really. Um, there's a man who later becomes an emperor who walks into a temple and is, somebody's performing a sacrifice and he gets spattered with something on his cloak and he takes his sword out and he cuts his cloak off. And that's seen as a sign of his great holiness because to be polluted by even a drop of, drop of de demonic of, of the old religions could take you to perdition, it was felt. There's an amazing um, letter by Augustine Somebody writes to him, and it's so reminiscent. I mean, you're probably you all have read this, but that bit in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, when he's mm -hmm. saying, um, and if I drop a bit of the, uh, of, uh, the wafer on the floor, is that part of the body of Christ or all of the body of Christ? And the questions asked are as minute about demonic possession in this period as that. So somebody writes to Augustine and he says, if there's a feast day and a pagan has sat in a chair, and then they're not sitting in it, but I need to sit in the same chair. Can I sit in that chair or will I be polluted? And then he has another one where he says, uh, and if I'm walking past a temple uh, in the countryside and I'm hungry, can I, can I take some of the food that is around the temple? There's, you know, offerings left. And then there's another one where he says, and if I'm walking through the countryside, he's really been thinking about this. He says, if I'm walking through the countryside and I'm starving to death, 
And the only food I can find, I mean, it's an amazing sort of situation to present Augustine with. It's a sort of classic, like, if the railway train is going this way, should I switch the things? But he says, and if I'm starving to death and the only food is the food on the pagan altar, can I eat it? And Augustine says, no, absolutely not. It is demonic, better to die. Well, um, and, and, and that contrasts enormously with, the, with classical civilization, because, partly because death, it seems, is, is preferable in many instances. And that's something which was not true at all. In fact, you know, Hades is a, is a strange kind of a place and much less interesting than life and really hang on to life as long as yeah. you can. And the other part of this, of course, is that uh, the gods, are, the gods don't particularly give a damn about us yeah. in, the, in the previous, yeah. you know, rules. Whereas, you know, he's, he's never off looking at you and having an opinion about you in this new world, is he? Yeah, he's very busy. He really is, you know. He's, he's the all-seeing all eye. Yeah, and that, then, when we talk about sort of a, I suppose, some kind of epistemological change that happens, that means that that's a deep psychological change for everybody who makes that transition from one belief system yeah, to another. Yeah, it's a huge change. And, and there are, yeah, it's, it's one of the most interesting changes from this external idea of external control to internal mm. policing. And you start to get these very anxious texts with people seeing stains on their soul and writing about it and things like that. And the, um, sorry, just going back to the first part of that question was... Well, I suppose uh, yeah, the, 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 this, this complete change, I've just forgotten the cycle myself, but just this profound, this clash of this new culture coming in, which is really where, where death is, is not to be feared, is yeah. to be welcomed and life is lived yeah. in the full glare of the spotlight of this deity who's never taking his eye yeah. off you as opposed to the other crowd who really didn't care that much what yeah. you got up to. There's a really interesting, in Chelsus again, this guy who, who writes about why did God need a rest if he was so omnipotent. There's a bit where he says, um, why is he so interested in you anyway? Hasn't, like, he's God. Surely he's got some amazing things he could be doing rather than, you know, watching what you're doing in your kitchen or... You know, and they can't fathom it. It's so peculiar to them because they're gods. Obviously, they have an absolute ball. I mean, you know, they totally make the most of their divinity and they can't understand this new god who is all powerful, but all interested as well. It's, yeah, it's a real, um, a huge epistemological shift. There's, there's, a, there's a part of the book, a substantial part, later part of the book, which is really about the last stand of the classical aged classical philosophers in Athens and they finally admit their defeat and they, they head off into the desert to try and find refuge in Persia which doesn't work out very well um, <laughs> and it's a kind of a, it's that it, if, if you were to look at an end note mm. of, of this that's what happens when the school closes in Athens mm -hmm. and maybe you could tell us a bit about, about those people yeah so there's this great guy called Damascius who is a sort of poison poison pen um, writer and philosopher and, you know, a very intelligent, energetic guy. Um, he tells lots of stories about uh, people, famously the philosopher Hypatia, who was the one who was sort of had flayed alive. And he talks about, she was very chaste. Chastity wasn't, you know, purely Christian thing. And he talks about how um, somebody... Somebody falls in love with her and turns up at her, her lectures, and she's very beautiful as well, turns up at her lectures and sort of declares his love. And apparently she throws her sanitary towel at him <laughs> and says, you love this and there's nothing beautiful about it. 
Anyway, so her relationship didn't go any further. But, I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. He records these fun things. And he, he's a philosopher. He's a leader. He has seen terrible things. So he's from Alexandria, so he knows a bit about persecution. His brother was flogged by the Christians. Um, you know, they know their friends have been flogged, their houses have been searched, their temples have been demolished by monks who turn up with an axe and then sing hymns all night as a sort of final insult to them. Um, and then he has to leave Alexandria. The persecutions come, become too much. And he sets sail and he goes to Athens. And he basically gets going the academy. So the, the, the famous academy, which had sort of fallen into a bit of not disarray, but it wasn't what it was. And he gets it going. He, he creates the most flourishing philosophical centre in the Roman world. And then Justinian passes in 529 AD. And this is the date when people look for an end of Roman civilization, end of the fall of Rome. This is, this is one of the dates that they use. They say, from this point on, it's the Dark Ages. And my book's called The Darkening Age. I'm, I'm not looking to resurrect the term, the Dark Ages. Um, there are various academics who feel very fiercely about that. But my point is that for those within it, for the Damascuses of this world, this, this brilliant and tenacious philosopher, you know, it was getting darker. There's no doubt about it. It was terrifying. And so he brings back the academy to Athens. He gets philosophy, you know, thriving again after a few years when it had been in abeyance. And they have this beautiful house with this lovely courtyard and these amazing statues. You know, you can see the hairs on the eyebrows of an emperor. And then in 529 AD, Justinian passes law after law um, that just not only mean that you cannot not be a Christian anymore, you have to go and be baptised, and if you don't get baptised, you'll be exiled, you'll have your possessions taken off you. But also, if you relapse, he is the one who says you will be executed. But the real, the real blow for these philosophers was he says that anyone who is afflicted by the madness of paganism, which meant these, these philosophers can't teach. So that was it. They lost their jobs. They lost their right to teach. They lost their right to be who they were. And, startly, and then things started to be confiscated from them as well. And then they decided a couple of years later they just had to go. So they went, they went to Persia, which um, they didn't much enjoy. I think they had a bit of culture shock when they were going there. Um, but... Sounds then a bit they, miserable, actually. Well, yeah. It was, yeah, they didn't like. They didn't like. Um, they couldn't get used to the idea of not burying the dead in Greece. This was the ultimate thing. You know, the Odyssey, the Iliad starts with the horror of people's bodies being left out and birds picking at them. This is the ultimate shame in Greece. But of course, in Persia at the time, you know, it was it was common practice. So they become obsessed with the idea of trying to bury a body that they pass on the way and thinking that they're doing good. And the other thing that bothers them hugely is polygamy, which annoys them less because it's polygamy, but more because it seems that then men, even then, manage to have affairs. And I think it's a sort of disorganisation of it that irritates them. I, you, indeed. Well, um, to go back to the title of the book, I'm, I'm not going to get into an argument with those very well-qualified historians who have a problem with the, the phrase the Dark Ages, but it does, uh, obviously the title plays directly into that that notion mm. that there was, which, which it seems to me to be true in my own ignorant way, that there was this huge loss, there was this huge backward step, this collapse of the most advanced civilization in the world, um, and uh, it took an awful long time to get back mm. 
some at least of, of what was lost. And one of the reasons why I had never really thought of putting these two things together uh, previously about the, the, the fall of the, of the classical world and the rise of Christianity was that the sort of historical texts that I, I had read looked at it in structural or political or demographic or sociological or economic ways mm. as opposed to being about the, the replacement of one belief system by another. Um, so, I mean, are you saying that Christianity caused the Dark Ages or was it, had it was a contributory factor or what, what's your read on that? I mean, it's really interesting the way we don't, we don't really write about religion that much. I think this is a probably an Enlightenment legacy. Hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a thing where the Enlightenment thinkers just sort of couldn't really believe that the Romans believed anyway. You know, ah, so silly, loads of gods. Who would believe in that? They're Romans, they're really sensible, they've got toilets. Of course they didn't believe in that. <laughs> and there's this utter dismissal of all Roman religion as being absurd. I mean, it's, it's a very kind of... Um, Christian monotheistic inability to believe in any kind of in the in the validity of any polytheistic religion. Um, so it's minimized. I think that's one of the reasons it's played down. They think, oh, they didn't care. They never minded. They didn't like temples. And temples kind of changed into churches anyway. It didn't bother them. And Christianity was loads. You know, just in their eyes, in the eyes of the Enlightenment, it was so much more sensible. Um, you often get people writing, you know, quite late academics writing about the absurdity of, of the beliefs of, of Augustine when, you know, in his earlier days, you know, how could he believe in Manichaeanism? You know, it's just this utter dismissal of the religion. I think that's part of the reason. So that it's lost, it's not seen as a bad thing. But yeah, I do. I mean, I, this will make um, certain academics cross, but I do mm. think it got worse. And I do think Christianity was to blame because... It's a numbers game. There are not that many books. If you make people frightened, if you outlaw thinking anything that isn't Christian, if you make it I illegal to discuss religion in public as they did, if you terrorize philosophers who disagree with your teachings, and if you then stop copying out any books that are pagan and wicked and they said, don't read pagan books, they're evil, don't, you know, don't touch them, stay clear of them. And Augustine gloated that the philosophies, the old philosophies, had been suppressed. He said they wouldn't dare to come out now unless they were covered in a Christian name. And that's kind of what happens. You know, non-Christian philosophy gets sort of coated in Christianity, but then that's, that's not really non-Christian philosophy anymore. You've made it something else. You've made it theology. Yeah, basically. you've made it theology. Mm. And, and, but the main thing is, is they stop copying out these books. So we lose 99% of all classic, all Latin literature is gone. 90% of all classical literature. Most of what's left is Galen, who's great, but you know, there was other stuff. Um, and what they spend their time copying out is Christian texts. What, they, what you learn first and foremost is Christianity. If what you are copying out are Bibles, they are huge. You know, just in a sheer manpower and pages and ink and time, if what you're copying out is Augustine and the Bible, you know, there isn't much space for other stuff in a very simple level. I think that alone, without book burning, without terrorizing philosophers, that alone caused a huge intellectual shift. Well, you, you, you talk about the way in which vellum was erased with pumice stone yeah. so, that, so that, you know, scripture or other forms yeah. of religious text can, you know, can be written. I suppose there's an element of that, which is a sort of an economic factor, isn't there? It's yeah. like uh, in the same way as um, old television programs got wiped because, yeah. the, because <laughs> the tapes were so expensive and they yeah. re, re, reused them again. But, so I wonder, I wonder how systemic all that is, that erasure of all that. Is that, is that systemic or is, it, or is it just part of, 
of the natural supplanting of one belief system by another. It's interesting. There is evidence. Um, often, what uh, there, some of it was just economics. It's expensive. You know, you don't believe in it. You're not interested in it. You don't really understand it. Cover it with something we do believe in. Um, but there's evidence that there was some kind of ruling in maybe the seventh century where they said, get rid of these these really bad ones. And, and it's interesting what disappears. Atomism, all the works of Democritus, the father of atomism, they all go. And Epicureanism was seen as really dangerous to Christians, by Christians, because of its... its so the worst thing. ones are erased, yeah, the most objectionable well, they, ones to the new And they're the often new, erased with things saying, erased. read only Christian texts. You know, they're often, they're often covered over with texts that then say, stay clear of pagan books. So, uh, and things... But, I mean, some of it's economical... Um, more it's just a willful lack of interest uh, in mm. it said that in um copying houses to show that you wanted a book pass so they worked in silence so to show that you wanted a psalter or something you'd, you'd do this sign if you wanted a pagan book you would make a gagging sign to show how terrible it was and if you wanted a really egregious one you pretend to scratch behind your ear like a dog who had fleas I mean, that is punishing. That's a punishing intellectual atmosphere. And, it, you know, it suffered. They suffered terribly. What if I were to attempt to propose a counter-narrative, being a, trying to be a rational post-Christian empiricist, um, um, and said that the Roman Empire and that classical world was at a stage of decay for a, for a variety of reasons, and indeed, you know, many you know contemporary commentators commented on the on the the erosion of the the classical virtues of the mm -hmm. Roman state and the the, the democracy as it, as it existed, and the culture, and there were pressures from outside and military pressures, and it was it was crumbling in a number in a number of different ways. And as we said earlier, there were these other competing monotheisms and other forms of belief floating around. And so that therefore, that the collapse and the loss, tragic as it was, is not, cannot be directly ascribed to Christianity, but that Christianity perhaps filled some sort of a vacuum or a void that was created by all those things. Mm. Well, that's it, yeah. I mean, and that's the argument that an Enlightenment would have, thinker would, would say. I mean, um, Samuel Johnson famously said, oh, you know, the heathens were really easy to convert because they had nothing, you know, they had nothing to give up. They didn't care. And, and you can say... Um, Ah, sorry. Well, it, it's just the idea that actually that, that, that Christianity, rather than causing all those things, or at least being a, 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 the core engineer that led to the darkening, as, mm -hmm. you, as you call it, was just a factor because there was this brewing anarchy and a vacuum and an oh, yeah, absence of, yeah, of course, systems, yeah. you know, with, yeah, you know nature, nature abhors a vacuum and this yeah. particular very powerfully held belief system. Mm. Amen. I see, yeah. And Christians, and certainly that's an argument held, held by, um, put forward by a number of Christians. And, mm. and the idea that the Romans were just so naughty and so badly behaved, you know, they kept having these drunken banquets and, and then, you know, they were always going to be sort of taken over by a better belief system. Um, but unfortunately, apparently, Roman banquets weren't anywhere near as much fun as we thought. And yeah, that's a shame. And their baths <laughs> were the Christians, filthy, apparently, as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> the baths were filthy. And the Christians spend a lot of time inveighing against Roman banquets, which, you know, saying, you know, it's disgusting. And purple sheets as well. They really hated purple sheets and jeweled sandals. <laughs> um, 
I remember a Catholic telling me that when I was younger. I remember him saying, look, she's wearing an ankle bracelet. That means she's a loose woman. And you see this, you see these beliefs in the text, you know, that the Romans are sort of, they're crumbling anyway. They are, as you say, they're falling. And, you know, the empire was weaker. It had had, it, the past couple of centuries had been disastrous. And Constantine had been this extraordinary force, this energising force. And he had brought it back in part with Christianity. But... I mean, Christianity, there's no getting around the fact it actively targeted and attacked and eliminated things it didn't like and didn't believe in. They didn't have to demolish the temples. They didn't have to smash, smash the statues. But when you, know, when you go to museums today, you see statues with their noses missing, their breasts have been chipped off, and they've got crosses in their faces. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't just Rome crumbling. That was Christianity pushing. Just one last question. Uh, Bert, in his introduction, mentioned that the opening chapter, the opening few pages of the book, are in Palmyra, when this ragged bunch of zealots sweep in from the Syrian desert and desecrate the, uh, the temple of Athena. And it, it, it seems obvious to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you didn't choose that location by accident. So is there a parallel between what you describe in the third and the fourth century and some of the threats which uh, a rational, empirical, civilized society faces from funda fundamentalism today? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a parallel. No, I didn't, I didn't choose, it, choose it at random. I suppose it's so hard for us to see Christianity. Me, you know, you, we were, we were, so many of us were brought up believing one thing, and as you say, you use the phrase hiding in plain sight. You can't see it, or even when you do see it, it's impossible to imagine that they minded almost until you find these few forgotten texts where they clearly mind. They're clearly desperate. They clearly hate this, the pagans. They hate the Christianization. They hate the attacks. So I sort of wanted to shock the reader into thinking, actually, this was serious. Actually, it was violent. Actually, it was frightening. And so I think there is a parallel. I was sort of using it both ways. But also, you know, we often write as though what's happening now is utterly, utterly alien to us. Who are these people who could believe that they're going to get, you know, these virgins in heaven? What kind of craziness is this? And it's not as alien to us as I think we'd like to believe, so. Mm. The Darkening Age is a terrific book. I recommend it to all of you. Catherine Nixie, thank you so much for talking to oh, us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.